Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 63. And last Sunday's message was Jerusalem's and your future. And as I go through the prophetic books, which are tough books, you know, they're a lot of studying, a lot of praying, um, God speaking about things that happens in different time periods to the believers of the 7th century B.C., speaking about things that happen quickly, 1st century, and then it's such an old book But he spoke about things that are happening today, amazingly enough, and in our future. So what I do is, and I try to follow what's God doing. I follow how he's kind of looking at prophecy and, you know, he can be in different time periods because he's God. He loves his people in whatever dispensation they're in. Um, So what I do is I, I look at context with the Israelites, but I'm also looking at how he speaks to all believers and how we can take some of the lessons that he used back then and apply them today. Uh, Today, the message is titled, God's Immutability Gives Hope. Immutability means God can't change. We're going to talk about what immutability means, and we're going to talk about based on his MO in the back or how he did things in in history, how that can bless us uh, today. Now, we've been talking about hope. We've been talking about, you know, him invested in your future. I'm I'm setting you up here a little bit. Uh, We can talk about, you know, how he wants a personal relationship with us. But there's going to be times in the scripture where, especially if you're not familiar with God's word, it might be like a splash of cold water in the face. We're also going to talk about God's judgment. To me, this separates Bible teachers from motivational speakers. And I will say this up front, I make no apologies for it, guys who call themselves pastors and only want to teach half of the Bible because they're afraid to teach on judgment, they're afraid to teach on sin, because they're afraid that maybe they won't pull in that many people to their church or people won't like them as a person, they're cowards. To me, that separates the men from the boys. A lot of good Bible teachers out there that teach the entire scripture. So to me, if you want to always say nice things and you have your own radio station and your own you know, TV station and you refuse to teach half of the scripture, then that tells me you're ashamed of God's word and you don't deserve the title of preacher or pastor. So as you can tell this morning, we're going to go into some of the judgment, but we're going to see the silver lining in that regardless. And we're going to look at this in five parts and then towards the end, we're really going to get the encouraging part of what's going to happen here. So let's jump in. Isaiah 63. So I with verse 1. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So this is a Q&A. The prophet oftentimes spoke in the first person, the third person, the second person, and we have to decipher what he's saying, but it's really not that hard to figure out when we look at the cues. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? 
I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. So one out of five is the vengeance of the Lord. If you're new to the scripture, this is no other, no, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ that is second coming. Plain and simple, you know. I know if you don't know the scripture or you've heard things about Jesus, he has a dual nature. God has a dual nature. He's a God of love and compassion, but he's also a God of righteousness and justice. And, and in our hearts, we do cry out for justice, and eventually justice is going to come. But let's look at the, um, the names and the, the locations. He comes from Edom. Edom is today, and the plots of geography don't change. The topography doesn't change. The names change. But Edom today is modern-day Jordan, which uh, if you take, go from Israel, you're going basically a trip that's a southeast trip across the border. From, I'm sorry, from Jerusalem into this place called Edom, or modern-day Jordan. It gets more specific. He speaks about Basra, Basra, which is also known as Petra. This is a rock city. If we could put up the, not rock and roll, but it's literally made out of rock. Um, It's a fascinating place, and I'll tell you how much more fascinating it becomes in Bible prophecy. Look how big the people are. Now, this was before, you know, earth-moving equipment, caterpillars, and hydraulics, People did this, man. I mean, just good old-fashioned craftsmanship. Uh, let's look at the next picture. I mean, you can just get a, a, a view. This was carved into a mountain. It's magnificent. It's magnificent. They have uh, cisterns to collect water. They have latrines. They have their own amphitheater. They have gardens. They have... This, this is something that exists. Jordan allows... Uh, you know, trips to go by and check out this city. It's a, it's actually one of the more, it's called the modern seven wonders of the world. There used to be like the seven wonders of the world. The updated seven wonders of the world has this in it. So I'm just giving you a little history. Uh, the Nabataeans made this their capital. They, they crafted it in the fourth century BC. And at one point in history, there was up to 20,000 inhabitants in it. So I'm just showing you a little piece of it. I mean, this is literally a rock city. Now, what's going to happen here is that the future armies uh, are, you know, the Antichrist, the globalists, the things we've been reading about in the scripture. And he is going to, as many dictators have done in the past, you can see Europe moving towards this and trying to get us to come along, is this one world government, one world army. It's going to be the United Nation on steroids. And the wrong person is going to be heading it, and all kinds of atrocities are going to be committed. This is the future, and you can already see the setup for it. Uh, The Israelites will be persecuted because this man is a rabid anti-Semite. He probably is alive today. His true colors haven't been revealed yet. He's probably very charismatic, uh, very very ecumenical, very global, trying to get everybody together, and it seems good until, until the power is put in his hands. Sells his soul to the devil. He comes after the Israelites, and especially Jerusalem, and many of them flee southeast to Petra to be protected. 
And there is a good protection there for a time because it is made of rock, and there's very uh, narrow passes, so armies that try to get in, are, you know, it's going to be difficult for them to get there. Uh, and this is what's going to happen. This is the area of Scripture known as what's called eschatology. Eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times. So we see, you know, again, going back, way back and through Isaiah, we've covered 63 chapters at this point. We see Christ's first coming to, to save our souls, to redeem us from sin. And we see in the future his second coming where he comes to redeem the physical creation. It's very orderly, very legal, makes a lot of sense when you think about it and you really start to study it. So verse 1, the Lord is, right, is glorious. His apparel is beautiful. He's traveling in the greatness of his strength. He speaks in righteousness and he's mighty to save. This can only be Christ. A man, I don't care how great of a leader, how good he is, he can't fit this bill. Uh, His apparel is also red, like the one who treads the winepress, except it's not stained from grapes, but by blood. You know, some of my ancestors were Italian, and, you know, they would crush the grapes with their feet, and all those stories are true. And the, the, the juice would run out, and they would be fermented, and they would make wine. And their feet and whatever they were wearing, don't wear your good clothes, because it's going to get stained with grape juice. Right? The Israelites, a lot of uh, crossover, a lot of cultural uh, similarities, Israelites did the same thing. And this is a metaphor for Christ treading the winepress of the fierceness of his anger to judge sin. It says he did it alone. He was fighting with fury and in vengeance, but righteous. And some people struggle with this, especially some of the young people, because they're being bombarded by the media and academia with all these ridiculous terms. You know, American culture is moving towards a weak and flaccid culture. It sees wimpiness as virtue and warriors as toxic masculinity. I'm actually enjoying myself. I'm like, I went to college some 30 years ago. And this, the, the stuff that comes out of the, these professors, man, and they feed it to Hollywood, they feed it to the media, and now we have to abide by this, these silly standards. You know, there's always a new phrase that comes out. But, you know, warriors, the, uh, the Messiah will come back in his second coming as a warrior. Got a little shout-out back there. Uh, <laughs> see? Children can uh, understand this stuff and and rejoice in it. So Revelation 19, if we could turn to that, I'm going to read some verses. Heavy stuff in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, verse 11. Again, this is future from 2019. When it is, we're not really sure. The Apostle John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. This is the Lord Christ. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. By the way, for those that have a difficulty settling the dual nature of God, Jesus spoke about this stuff while he was on earth. We have it recorded in Scripture. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. Now this is this gathering of nations under this global leader that he's coming in before the Israelites are pretty much annihilated. 
He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. This is when he establishes kingdom. We've been speaking about the millennial kingdom. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. It's probably a really cool looking tattoo, right? Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds, and I've seen this, I live in a rural part of uh, Middlesex County, that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather for the together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh. Well, not people, I've seen eaten deer carcasses, but that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them. It's going to be a horrible battle. The people of all, uh, free and slave, small and great. I saw the beast, the king of the earth. The beast was the Antichrist, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Big mistake. Then the beast was captured, and with the false prophet, this ecumenical leader who's probably alive today, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Wow, pretty uh, heavy stuff there. But a few other things that we have to look at. We have to look at uh, clues in Scripture. We have to do our investigations here. And it says that he did it alone. He did it alone. You know what's interesting? When Christ went to the cross, he did it alone. He didn't say to the disciples, oh, come with me. He was God. He was the only one who could have died for our sins. So he had gatherings of probably hundreds of thousands, maybe thousands of people, but he went to the cross and he did it alone. When he comes back in glory and in judgment, he's also going to do it alone. This is a God thing. This is something only God can do, right? So the saints are, are coming with him, but he, I don't know, tells him, hey, just relax over there for a few minutes. I've got work to do. Joel 3, Revelation 14, you see the same picture. Now, when Christ was on earth, let's look at a lot of these, these cues and clues. John 5.43, and I'm going to paraphrase it, Jesus speaks to the Jewish leadership and basically is acknowledging to them that they're going to reject him. And he speaks about another coming leader that they're going to accept. And by extension, in our future, not only the Jewish leadership, but also the world. And this is this charismatic, antichrist, unifying, supposedly global leader. That's in John 5.43. So he's basically acknowledging they're going to reject him. They're going to send him to the cross. Doesn't matter. He's still going to die for everybody. In the future, the world is going to accept another person who stands up. And after he gets this great gathering of folks, he's going to say, I'm the Messiah. And people are actually going to worship him. Is it, is it strange? Not really. How many cults are there today in the world? Jewish cults, Christian cults, cults. These weird, bizarre teachings where some dude stands up. Some cases, it's a woman. And says, follow me. You know, let's go to this secluded place. That should be the first clue right there. Um, And I'm going to be your president. I'm going to be your leader. I'm going to have ultimate authority. And don't question me because God anointed me. It's so sick how religion and some cults can twist people's mind and think, well, I can't question this because this person's from God. No, you can question it. In this church, everything I say, the scriptures are up there. There's Bibles in the pews because anybody could go bad at any time. It's the sinful flesh. The only one that we can truly put our trust in, and certainly our salvation, is God. 
So this is what's going to happen. Um, Christ is going to return before everything gets really horrible, and he's going to head off this army, and he's going to destroy them. And the birds are going to eat a lot of food. So birds are going to be happy. So this is the end for my Bible students. Jeremiah 30, Jacob's trouble. This is the end of Jacob's trouble. Okay, Daniel chapter 9, the last Shavuot, a seven-year period, right? Daniel chapter 9, the last um, part of that seven-year period. The end of the Great Tribulation, Matthew 24. Again, the end. Uh, The times of Revelation, there's going to be these judgments, there's going to be the Antichrist causing chaos, and then when the Lord returns, he's going to stifle all that and then set up his millennial kingdom. Verse 4, he says, vengeance is in my heart. The year of my redeemed has come. Again, it doesn't mean that God enjoys punishing sin. It doesn't mean he enjoys sending anybody to the lake of fire. But it's necessary to save. He can't let human history continue to the tempo that it's going. Now, I'm going to say this because you know, some people get really caught up in their own popularity. I don't consider myself a prophet, but there are times that I say things, and it's periodically, that that week something comes out that's new information. What I said was prophetic. I talked about the whole abortion debate and where the abortion crew is going and killing babies after they're already born. I talked about what's going on in the laboratories. Um, You know what? That week, Pastor Vinny, after I spoke, two, three days later, he sends me an article that said, a new article that just came out that in labs in the United States, they're taking um, fetus parts, and there's investigations going on. But a lot of people are blocking these investigations because, you know, it's for the good of society. It could cure cancer. So you take the part of uh, fetuses and start putting them in mice and um, interchanging their organs. The idea is to, they do all these things on these mice. If they have some parts from human beings and DNA, um, they can supposedly cure all these diseases. So it's altruistic, but it's hidden, right? It's, we have no idea what's going on in these laboratories here and in other countries. So <laughs> it, God is not going to allow this to keep happening. He's got to stop it at some point. I mean, it just if you give a human being a, a worlds run by men and women enough power, there's just... Where's it going to end? It doesn't end. It's just more depraved, right? Sometimes war is necessary. Look at World War II. Somebody had to liberate the concentration camps, and uh, Hitler made a lot of blunders. Uh, his army, his armies were incredible. The Blitzkrieg, the the uh, the um, invention of the jet engines and stuff, and we started to be outclassed towards the end of the world. But he ran out of fuel. And he ran out of, you know, a lot of things. But thank God that God allowed the allies to pick up on a lot of this stuff and start turning the tide because the inventions they were coming up with were, were like no one has ever seen. So I believe that God had his hand in World War II in helping to end that. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. It says to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of those who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Right? Sometimes he allows good people to do that. Sometimes he does it himself. In this case, what we're reading, he's going to do it himself. Verses 7 through 10, continuing on. 
He says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us. Now, this almost sounds like a different book from what we just read, but, but follow me. And the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love, in his love, just to make sure I didn't miss a verse here. No, I didn't. Okay, thank you. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. So two out of five is the love, God's love for his people. Now, This is very cerebral. And if you're new to prophecy, just stick with it. You'll get it. It'll eventually come to you. Just keep praying through it, ask questions. But you see this vacillation or, um, you know, this moving back and forth in a good way between, you say, what, 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 Israel, but, you know, the second coming, people get confused. Because when the Lord returns, there's this seven-year period where believers have already gone to be with him. So Israel, really, the Israelites, the saved uh, people, the tribulation saints, Jews and Gentiles that get saved during the tribulation, it's a different group of people. But if, for those of us, if it happened in five years, you know the Lord, God has already called you home, doesn't want us to experience this. So the focus now changes on different believers. There's always going to be a remnant. There's always going to be people that do believe in each different time period of dispensation. You see this going back between the first and second coming. We're going to cover that. Um, we're going to see the difference between God's character, right? The, the uh, justice and the vengeance nature that he has against sin and, and awful, you know, dictators and stuff. And then the loving hand uh, of those that are for him, his believers, that don't experience what I just said. So we're going to see that. Uh, so two out of five is God's love for his people. He transcends many generations. So historically, Egypt, you know, the children of Israel were, you know, able to leave Egypt, which was great in Egyptian exodus. Later on, uh, fast forward some uh, centuries, you have the Babylonian ex- uh, exodus, which a lot of Isaiah is staged in. And then that last part, which is in our future, is going to be this exodus from, from Edom or Jordan. They're going to come out. The Lord's going to save them. They're going to be returning to their homeland. Interesting. And again, for some, it's, it's difficult because he turns on a dime. He goes from a warrior to loving kindness, goodness, merciful, loving, and pitying. Let me just look at this in a human perspective. The allies who came, who were marching in, you know, east and, you know, defeating the Nazis, going to the concentration camps, and they might have shot up a hundred soldiers, a thousand. They open the doors and there's these gaunt uh, people and they put their guns down, and they, they nurse them, they give them water, they feed them. So it's really not a stretch to see the difference of nature that we could have. A warrior can be hostile towards an evil enemy, but be loving towards somebody who's a victim, and that's the way it should be. Now think about God. He's perfect. Why is it okay for God to do this alone? And, and, or why is it okay for God to be this way, but not necessarily for any man or woman to have ultimate authority because we are sinners and we have biases. That's why God sees everything perfectly. He will never punish the innocent, right? 
He will never let the, the wicked escape. Okay? So this is why God has to do it. Because you can't leave it to me. I'm going to make a mistake. Can't leave it to you. You're going to look out for those that you know and kind of, you know. So this is, how the, this is how it works. Another thing that we have here is what side do you choose to be on? Right? I choose to be on God's side as a loving father. Do I ever have to experience any, any of this? Never. Did Revelation, reading Revelation as somebody who wasn't saved yet, keep me up at night? Sometimes. Does it keep me up now? No. See, because I've trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm a child of God now. You see the difference? I could read all the vengeance and the judgment in the lake of fire and not even have my heartbeat raised a few beats because I know who I am in Christ. Now, you can have that as well. And many of you here do have that. So I have to keep this in I'm probably over-explaining, but I'm doing it for a reason because sometimes it's hard to absorb this. Somebody who knows Christ should never be in fear of any of this stuff because the Bible says that that day of wrath is not appointed for you, right? The trial that the whole world will uh, experience, Revelation, I believe it's three, but you. But again, the whole world can come to him and nobody has to experience it. Choices, God gives us choices. So let me, let me give you the other uh, part of this, is that those that, and you hear it today, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why are there dictators? Why is there poverty? Eventually it's not going to happen anymore. God is giving every person space to repent, including the evil ones. That's how loving and merciful he is. But when he actually comes down in judgment, those same people will say, oh, that's horrible. How could a loving God do that? Listen, you can't have it both ways. It's a non sequitur. It's a fallacious logical argument. You know what I'm saying? And Jesus said this while he was alive. John the Baptist came like a wild man out of the woods and preaching repentance. And they said, he's crazy. He has a demon. He wasn't crazy. They just didn't like to hear what he had to say. Now, Jesus is referring to himself sort of like in the third person. And he says, but the son of man came and uh, he was with sinners and, you know, tried to love them and bring them to righteousness. And I'm paraphrasing. And they said, oh, he's, we don't like him either. He is a, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And you have that in the world. People do this all the time. And I've been doing apologetics and debate for a long time. They want to see justice. But then when God gives justice, they're like, oh, that's mean. Seriously, who are we to tell God what to do? You know, trust me, no one, you know, the, our court system is actually... Uh, designed so that hopefully that an innocent person, you know, there's so many check, check places, <laughs> check valves, thank you. It's designed that sometimes the guilty go free because they don't want to make the mistake of an innocent person going to jail or the death penalty. And some innocent people still end up in jail. We read articles like that. And guilty, the guilty don't, do go free. So our system's not perfect, but God's system is. So don't look at what's going on around you or things you see in the news and now eisegesis or eisegetically place it into the scripture because you're going to get confused every time. Okay, verse 9. We see God's compassion. He says, in all their afflictions. Remember, he was afflicted. He chose to identify with the affliction of his people, whoever they are at this time period. If we could turn to 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. It says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It means don't rebel. Don't fight against him. Don't, you know, 
that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your cares upon him, for he cares for you. You This was very attractive to the uh, Greco-Roman culture because their pantheon of gods were very cold and sterile. We see that a lot with even polytheists today. Certain religions, you know, so what's your God like? Is he a father? Oh, he's not a father and he's capricious. Our God is a loving father, you know, and he does care for us. And we can cast all of our cares for us. And he does identify with us. You see what I'm saying? So we're, we're flipping back between natures here. But again, which side do you want to be on? We also know in the Old Testament that, you know, we, we're, we're going to get into a point about Moses. And we, we see that in, uh, in verse 11. The, looking back to the days of the, the exodus from Egypt. And he speaks about, he became their savior in their affliction. He was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. You know, the children of Israel had to actually, uh, unfortunately, kill a, an innocent lamb. But this was a type of Christ. And the blood was put on the doorpost and the top piece. And uh, the plague of death passed over them, right? The Passover. Um, So that was actually a type of Christ coming in the first century to shed his blood for the remission of all sins. See what I'm saying? So Christ also had a hand in the Old Testament, as he does in the New, and as he does in our future. Remember, he's eternal. People tend to think, oh, he was born, the babe in the manger, about 2,000 years ago. That's a mistake. He came to earth then, but he has always existed. Okay? Verse 10, it says, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And that's putting it mildly. Another thing is God gave the uh, prescription for, you know, his relationship with them. And he promised them if they were to take idols from their neighbors and they were to worship these kind of demonic gods and do these demonic practices that he would withdraw from them. So he gave them fair warning. When they did it, it was self-caused. So understand that. Verse 11, we continue. It says, then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they may not stumble as a beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord, Lord caused him to rest. So you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. So three out of five is the immutability of the Lord. Again, immutability. Let's take a moment to understand that means God can't change. Let's look at this in a human perspective. Unfortunately, some people start off good, get involved in something very damaging, and they change for the worse. They go down the wrong path. God can't do that because God can't sin. Okay, so there's no comparison there. Um, also, how do we change? We can also change for the better. Some are, I don't know, into criminal activity, into really bad behavior. Uh, they, they get saved, they come to Christ, and they change. They forsake their past, and they move forward, and they, you know, they're doing excellent. They're maturing, they're growing. So we can change for the better as humans. But God can't do that either. Poor God. There's like 12 or so things that he can't do. God can't change for the better because he's perfect. There is no better for God. You see what I'm saying? So when we talk about the Lord's immutability, we can look at the past and say, well, this is how he treated his people back then. For those of us that are reading that, we're like, well, there's hope for us. 
because God can't change. He can't all of a sudden get mean and just wipe everybody off the planet, uh, his, his believers. So three is the immutability of the Lord, a look to the past. As the Lord led his people out of Egypt, contextually what we're reading is them hoping he leads them out of Babylon, which he does. But God also says to them, but look to the future. When you get home from Babylon, don't forget what I did for you. Don't take, start taking the wrong path, which many of them did, but also look to the future. And that's why we have prophecy. So believers today, believers during the Great Tribulation could read the word and go, okay, there's hope for us. There was hope for the Egyptian, in the Egyptian exodus. There was hope in the Babylonian exodus. There will be hope in the exodus from Edom and Moab in the Great Tribulation. So, on a side note, parts two and three, we see God's Holy Spirit mentioned three times. God's Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. Again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It wasn't as crystal clear in the Old Testament, but as we start moving into the New Testament, it becomes more clear. That hasn't changed either. God has always expressed himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Last few verses, 15. So the prophet and the people or the remnant are saying, you know, the ones that are kind of focused on him, well, everybody's doing, a lot of people are doing bad things and not paying attention. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, Lord, from where you dwell, holy and glorious, Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel did not acknowledge us, the frailty of humans, even though they were patriarchs, you, O Lord, are our father. Remember, always look to God over people. Sometimes we we tend to, because other people are tangible, we could talk to them on the phone, we can hug them. Sometimes people start focusing on people. And in my opening, I spoke about some of these false teachers who are almost treated like gods. Look to God, because men and women are sinners. We can fall. We can fail. Fix your eyes on God. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servants' sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you have never ruled. Those who were never called by your name. Four out of five is the immutability of the Lord hope for the present. Context, Israelites, okay? You read this. In the 8th century B.C., you completely understand what you're going through. You, you understand that you want to get out of Babylon. You're begging God to remember his people. We're repentant. You know, we're, we're changing our ways. Get us, please get us out of here. It was self-caused, but God does. He removes them. Uh, Hebrew poetry is very passionate, sometimes hyperbolic because of deep feelings and emotions. So, in other words, the idea of being cast off forever, forsaken. Um, are we any different? What's the first thing we, we go to when we, some trial happens in our life? You know, you look at maybe the other people in the church, and we don't know what, they, what they're going through either. You know, oh, God's forgotten about me. Oh, I must have done something wrong. Or we just kind of go through this emotional kind of roller coaster and machinations because, because we don't feel good right now in our, in our emotions. But we have to be careful with that. 
um, how we feel is not always a representative of reality. You've got to keep that in mind. Verse 15, though, there's, there's a passionate plea. Look down. Where is your zeal and your strength for us, Lord? Remember, if you're going through a trial, if you're repentant, you just want God close to you. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I have to be honest, uh, 20-something years as a Christian, I probably have been the closest to God through trials. It's the human condition. Sometimes we, we get silly and everything's going great and we kind of run ahead of them, which we shouldn't. But during trials, you know, you, you want, you should, you should always want God close to us, but we, we want him even closer. And this is what they were going through. Verse 17, return for your servant's sake. Uh, some believe that, well, when God's spirit came into the temple, it was an amazing sight. You know, this, there was this smoke and even the priests couldn't stay in there. God's glory was physical presence was coming into the temple, Shekinah glory, his physical presence in the Holy of Holies on top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. But the Bible also tells us when the wickedness was so bad and there was these uh, hideous images and things going on in God's house in the temple that it says that the Shekinah glory, God's, his, his presence left them. He's like, I can't stay here in, under these conditions. So some can look at it as return, bring your, your Shekinah glory back. Uh, others just want a close relationship with the Lord. Today we don't, you know, the temple system is outdated. It's, it's run its course. But again, you understand the picture. God, return to me. You know, I'm, I'm struggling here. I'm, I'm begging you. A lot of repetition here. Verse 19, we have become like those you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. Again, they felt orf- orphaned. It was self-caused, but they felt orphaned by God. Um, again, it was a, he was always there. He was always there. I'll just say this. God will only be as, fa- as, as far as they or we want him to be. Think about that for a minute. Oh, God, you're so far from me. Who moved? God's a constant in his creation. He doesn't move, right? If we find ourselves, uh, there's a great chasm between us and God as a believer. It's because we really need to reevaluate how we got there because God didn't move. God wants to be close to all of us. Five out of five, the immutability of the Lord, hope for the future. We, we looked at the past contextually. We looked at the present contextually. Now we look at the future. We get into our time and, and beyond. And this is where the application really comes in. For the Israelites, God's immutability was the hope that they had to hold on to. They saw the Jewish people had and still do have a rich history with the Lord, Right? And although many dynasties and groups over the thousands of years have tried to annihilate the Jews, none of them have been successful. They're a minority on the planet, and they won't be annihilated. God will make sure of that. Okay? So the the Jewish people could read Isaiah's book and go, you know what? Yeah, he did do that for us in Egypt. We should just trust his character that he's going to do that for us. All they have to do, all they have to do is pick up a history book or read some of their prophets and know, all right, we know how to get it right again and get close to him. And folks, we know how to do the same thing, don't we? As Christians, when we're going through something or maybe it's self-caused or maybe, we, um, maybe it's a good time and we run ahead of God, we can always come back to him. He's a loving God. And, and the immutability gives us hope is even better for us because we get to see all the different time periods the scripture was written, and we can read any book in the Bible and say, yeah, I can be rejoined with my God. But it's up to me. It's up to me. So for us today, God is only as far as we want him to be. 
period. God immutability is what gives any sinner today hope. Yes, the vengeance of the Lord is coming. If you're in Christ, don't worry about it. I could read Revelation 10 times and go to sleep and sleep like a baby. Because it's not for me, <laughs> that part. You know what I'm saying? And you understand that when you're, when you're his. God gives you that peace. Nobody has to go through this. And that's the sad thing. The world is a stubborn place. So I leave you with this. Which side of God do you want to be on? Do you want to roll the dice? Take your chances? You know, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and whatever. When, when these things start to happen and then I'll get down on my knees. It's a poor attitude. You know what I'm saying? That's poor preparation. All sin must be judged and there is a time that it's going to be judged. However, if you are in Christ, check it out. All the future sins from the first century, you being born in your future sins, have already been judged at the cross. Like, that doesn't make sense. That's anachronistic. The time thing doesn't make sense. To you, it doesn't. To me, it doesn't, because we live in linear time. But to God, he can reach down at any point in history and do what he wants. He created it all. He created time. Think about that. Then it begs the question, in eternity, is there a calendar anymore? When we're in eternity, right? God's like, uh, okay, go to sleep, get up 8 o'clock for a little worship practice. I don't, think, I don't think we sleep anymore from what I read in the scripture. That's good because I, out of four days in a row, one night I get a good night's sleep. The other three, I'm like, oh, it's four o'clock. I got to go, go back to sleep. It happens when you get older, man. A lot of things happen when you get older for you young people. But I'm way off track, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I have notes to hold me in my lane. My question to you is, what side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the side of the world that goes along? And you see that groupthink. We're seeing that in our own culture. Some academic somewhere says, we should all think this. And everybody goes, we should all think this. If you have an opinion outside of what you see on TV... Any opinion, you're a backward, knuckle-dragging. I mean, this is the idea that's happening in our country, the land of the free, the land of debate. It's already happened in Europe. <laughs> so my question to you is, do you, are you gonna, Jesus said that the, the, the masses are on the wide road that lead to destruction. He says, few find the narrow road that leads to eternal life. Who cares what everybody else is doing? Do you want the Lord? Well, he wants you, and maybe he's calling you through this message. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.